0: Chapter forty two of Far From the Madding Crowd. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. Far From the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter forty two Joseph and His Burden. Buck's Head. A wall bounded the site of Casterbridge Union House, except along a portion of the end. Here a high gable stood prominent, and it was covered like the front with a mat of ivy. In this gable was no window, chimney, ornament, or protuberance of any kind. The single feature appertaining to it, beyond the expanse of dark green leaves, was a small door. The situation of the door was peculiar. The sill was three or four feet above the ground, and for a moment... One was at a loss for an explanation of this exceptional altitude, till ruts immediately beneath suggested that the door was used solely for the passage of articles and persons to and from the level of a vehicle standing on the outside. Upon the whole, the door seemed to advertise itself as a species of traitor's gate translated to another sphere. That entry and exit hereby was only at rare intervals became apparent on noting that tufts of grass were allowed to flourish undisturbed in the chinks of the sill. As the clock over the South Street almshouse pointed to five minutes to three, a blue spring wagon, picked out with red, and containing boughs and flowers, passed the end of the street, and up towards this side of the building. Whilst the chimes were yet stammering out a shattered form of Malbrook, Joseph Poorgrass rang the bell and received directions to back his wagon against the high door under the gable. The door then opened, and a plain elm coffin was slowly thrust forth, and laid by two men in Fustian along the middle of the vehicle. One of the men then stepped up beside it, took from his pocket a lump of chalk, and wrote upon the cover the name, and a few other words, in a large, scrawling hand. We believe that they do these things more tenderly now, and provide a plate. He covered the hole with a black cloth, threadbare, but decent. The tailboard of the wagon was returned to its place. One of the men handed a certificate of registry to Poor and both entered the door, closing it behind them. Their connection with her, short as it had been, was over for ever. Joseph then placed the flowers as enjoined, and the evergreens among the flowers, till it was difficult to divine what the wagon contained. He smacked his whip, and the rather pleasing funeral car crept down the hill and along the road to Wetherbury. The afternoon drew on apace, and looking to the right towards the sea as he walked beside the horse, Poorgrass saw strange clouds and scrolls of mist rolling over the long ridges which girt the landscape in that quarter they came in yet greater volumes, and indolently crept across the intervening valleys and around the withered papery flags of the moor and river brinks. Then their dank, spongy forms closed in upon the sky. It was a sudden overgrowth of atmospheric fungi which had their roots in the neighbouring sea, and by the time that horse, man, and corpse entered Yalbury Great Wood, these silent workings of an invisible hand had reached them and they were completely enveloped, this being the first arrival of the autumn fogs, and the first fog of the series. The air was as an eye suddenly struck blind. The wagon and its load rolled no longer on the horizontal division between clearness and opacity, but were embedded in an elastic body of a monotonous pallor throughout. There was no perceptible motion in the air, not a visible drop of water fell upon a leaf of the beeches, birches, and firs composing the wood on either side. The trees stood in an attitude of intentness, as if they waited longingly for a wind to come and rock them. A startling quiet overhung all surrounding things so completely that the crunching of the wagon-wheels was as a great noise, and small rustles, which had never obtained a hearing except by night, were distinctly individualised. Joseph poor looked round upon his sad burden, as it loomed faintly through the flowering Laurustinus. Then at the unfathomable gloom amid the high trees on each hand, indistinct, shadowless, and spectre-like in their monochrome of grey. He felt anything but cheerful, and wished he had the company even of a child or a dog. Stopping the horse, he listened. Not a footstep or wheel was audible anywhere around, and the dead silence was broken only by a heavy particle falling from a tree through the evergreens, and alighting with a smart rap upon the coffin of poor Fanny. The fog had by this time saturated the trees, and this was the first dropping of water from the overbrimming leaves. The hollow echo of its fall reminded the waggoner painfully of the grim leveller. Then hard by came down another drop, then two or three. Presently there was a continual tapping of these heavy drops upon the dead leaves, the road, and the travellers. The boughs were beaded with the mist to the greyness of aged men, and the rusty red leaves of the beeches were hung with similar drops, like diamonds on auburn hair. At the roadside hamlet called Roytown, just beyond this wood, was the old inn Buck's Head. It was about a mile and a half from Wetherbury, and in the meridian times of stagecoach travelling had been the place where many coaches changed and kept their relays of horses. All the old stabling was now pulled down, and little remained besides the habitable inn itself, which, standing a little way back from the road, signified its existence to people far up and down the highway by a sign hanging from the horizontal bough of an elm on the opposite side of the way. Travellers, for the variety Tourist, had hardly developed into a distinct species at this date, sometimes said in passing, when they cast their eyes up to the sign-bearing tree, that artists were fond of representing the sign hanging thus, but they themselves had never before noticed so perfect an instance in actual working order. It was near this tree that the wagon was standing, into which Gabriel Oak crept on his first journey to Wethery, but owing to the darkness the sign in the inn had been unobserved. The manners of the inn were of the old-established type. Indeed, in the minds of its frequenters they existed as unalterable formulae, e.g., "Rap with the bottom of your pint for more liquor. For tobacco, shout. In calling for the girl in waiting, say, Maid. Ditto for the landlady. Old soul. Etc., etc., It was a relief to Joseph's heart when the friendly signboard came in view, and, stopping his horse immediately beneath it, he proceeded to fulfil an intention made a long time before. His spirits were oozing out of him quite. He turned the horse's head to the green bank, and entered the hostel for a mug of ale. Going down into the kitchen of the inn, the floor of which was a step below the passage, which in its turn was a step below the road outside— What should Joseph see to gladden his eyes but two copper-coloured discs, in the form of the countenances of Mr. Jan Coggan and Mr. Mark Clark? These owners of the two most appreciative throats in the neighbourhood, within the pale of respectability, were now sitting face to face over a three-legged circular table, having an iron rim to keep cups and pots from being accidentally elbowed off. They might have been said to resemble the setting sun and the full moon, shining vis-à-vis across the globe. "'Why, tis neighbour Poorgrass," said Mark Clark. "'I'm sure your face don't praise your mistress's table, Joseph.' "'I've had a very pale companion for the last four miles,' said Joseph, indulging in a shudder toned down by resignation. "'And to speak the truth, twas beginning to tell upon me. I assure you, I ain't seen the colour of victuals or drinks since breakfast-time this morning, and that was no more than a dew bitter field.' "'Then drink, Joseph, and don't restrain yourself,' said Coggan, handing him a hooped mug three-quarters full. Joseph drank for a moderately long time, then for a longer time, saying, as he lowered the jug, "'Tis pretty drinking, very pretty drinking, and is more than cheerful on my melancholy errand, so to speak it.' "'True, drink is a pleasant delight.' said Jan, as one who repeated a truism so familiar to his brain that he hardly noticed its passage over his tongue. And lifting the cup, Coggan tilted his head gradually backwards, with closed eyes, that his expectant soul might not be diverted for one instant from its bliss by irrelevant surroundings. "'Well, I must be on again,' said Paul Gross. "'Not but that I should like another nip with ye. But the parish might lose confidence in me if I was seed here.' "'Where you be trading all to-day, then, Joseph?' "'Back to Wetherbury. "'I've got poor little Fanny Robin in my wagon outside, "'and I must be at the churchyard gates at a quarter to five with her.' "'Aye, I've heard of it. "'And so she's nailed up in parish boards after all, "'and nobody to pay the bell-shilling and the grave-half-crown.' "'The parish pays the grave-half-crown, but not the bell-shilling, "'because the bell's a luxury. "'But I can hardly do without the grave, poor body. "'However... "'I expect our mistress will pay all.' "'A pretty maid, as ever I see.' "'But what's your hurry, Joseph? "'The poor woman's dead, and you can't bring her to life, "'and you may as well sit down comfortable and finish another with us.' "'I don't mind taking just the least thimbleful ye can dream of more with, ye, sonnies. "'But only a few minutes, cos tis as tis.' "'Of course you'll have another drop. "'A man's twice the man afterwards.' You feel so warm and glorious, and you whop and slap at your work without any trouble, and everything goes on like sticks a-breaking. Too much liquor is bad, and leads us to that horrid man in the smoky house. But, after all, many people haven't the gift of enjoying a wet. And since we be highly favoured with a power that way, we should make the most of it.' "'True,' said Mark Clark, "'tis a talent the Lord has mercifully bestowed upon us, and we ought not to neglect it. But what with the parsons, and clerks, and school-people, and serious tea-parties, the many old way of good life have gone to the dogs upon my carcass they have.' "'Well, really, I must be on wood again now,' said Joseph. "'Not now, Joseph. Nonsense. The poor woman is dead, isn't she? And what's your hurry? "'Well, I hope Providence won't be in a way with me for my doings,' said Joseph, again sitting down. "'I've been troubled with weak moments lately, Tis true. "'I've been drinking once this month already, "'and I didn't go to church on Sunday, "'and I dropped a curse or two yesterday, "'so I don't want to go too far for my safety. "'Your next world is your next world, "'and not to be squandered offhand.' "'I believe ye to be a chapel member, Joseph, that I do.' "'Oh, no, 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 I don't go so far as that.' "'For my part,' said Coggan, "'I'm staunch Church of England.' "'Aye, and face so be I.' said Mark Clark. "'I wouldn't say much for myself. I don't wish to,' Coggan continued, with that tendency to talk on principles which is characteristic of the barleycorn. "'But I've never changed a single doctrine. I've stuck like a plaster to the old faith I was born in. Yes, there's this to be said for the Church. A man can belong to the Church and bide in his cheerful old inn and never trouble or worry his mind about doctrines at all. But to be a meetinger—' "'You must go to chapel in all winds and weathers "'and make yourself as frantic as a skit. "'Not but that chapel members be clever chaps enough in their way. "'They can lift up beautiful prayers out of their own heads "'all about their families and shipwrecks in the newspaper.' "'They can, they can,' said Mark Clark, with corroborative feeling. "'But we churchmen, you see, must have it all printed aforehand, "'or, dang it all, we should no more know what to say "'to a great gaffer like the Lord than babes unborn.' "'Chapel-folk be more hand-in-love with them above than we,' said Joseph thoughtfully. "'Yes,' said Coggan. "'We know very well that if anybody do go to heaven, they will. "'They've worked hard for it, and they deserve to have it, such as tis. "'I mayn't such a fool as to pretend that we who stick to the church have the same chance as they, "'because we know we have not. "'But I hate a fellow who's changed his old ancient doctrines for the sake of getting to heaven. "'I'd as soon turn king's evidence for the few pounds you get. "'Why, neighbours, when every one of my taties were frosted, "'our parson, thirdly, with a man who gave me a sack for seed, "'though he hardly had one for his own use and no money to buy them. "'If it hadn't been for him, I shouldn't have had a tatty to put into my garden. "'Do you think I'd turn after that?' "'No, I'll stick to my side. "'And if we be in the wrong, so be it. "'I'll fall with the fallen.' "'Well said, very well said,' observed Joseph." "'However, folks, I must be moving now. Upon my life I must. "'Parson Thirdly will be waiting at the church gates, "'and there's the woman abiding outside in the wagon.' "'Joseph Poorgrass, don't be so miserable. "'Parson Thirdly won't mind. He's a generous man. "'He's found me in tracks for years, "'and I've consumed a good many in the course of a long and shady life. "'But he's never been the man to cry out at the expense. "'Sit down.' "'The longer Joseph Poorgrass remained,' the less his spirit was troubled by the duties which devolved upon him this afternoon. The minutes glided by uncounted, until the evening shades began perceptibly to deepen, and the eyes of the three were but sparkling points on the surface of darkness. Coggan's repeater struck six from his pocket in the usual but still small tones. At that moment, Hasty steps were heard in the entry, and the door opened to admit the figure of Gabriel Oak, followed by the maid of the inn bearing a candle. He stared sternly at the one lengthy and two round faces of the sitters, which confronted him with the expressions of a fiddle and a couple of warming-pans. Joseph Poorgrass blinked and shrank several inches into the background. "'Upon my soul I am ashamed of you! Tis disgraceful, Joseph, disgraceful!' said Gabriel, indignantly. "'Coggan, you call yourself a man, and don't know better than this?' Coggan looked up indefinitely at Oak, one or other of his eyes occasionally opening and closing of its own accord, as if it were not a member, but a dozy individual with a distinct personality. "'Don't take on so, Shepherd said Mark Clark, looking reproachfully at the candle, which appeared to possess special features of interest for his eyes. "'Nobody can hurt a dead woman,' at length said Coggan, with the precision of a machine. "'All that could be done for her is done. She's beyond us. And why should a man put himself in a tearing hurry for lifeless clay that can neither feel nor see, and don't know what you do with her at all? If she'd been alive, I would have been in the first to help her. If she now wanted victuals and drink, I'd pay for it, money down. But she's dead, and no speed of ours will bring her to life. The woman's us." "'Time spent upon her is thrown away. "'Why should we hurry to do what's not required? "'Drink, shepherd, and be friends, for to-morrow we may be like her.' "'We may,' added Mark Clark, emphatically, at once drinking himself, "'to run no further risk of losing his chance by the event alluded to, "'Jan, meanwhile, merging his additional thoughts of to-morrow, in a song. "'To-morrow, to-morrow, and while peace and plenty I find at my board, "'with a heart free from sickness and sorrow,' With my friends will I share what to-day may afford, and let them spread the table to-morrow. To-morrow, to Do hold thy horning, Jan, said Oak, and turning upon poor grass. As for you, Joseph, who do your wicked deeds in such confoundedly holy ways? You are as drunk as you can stand. No, Shepherd Oak, oh, no. Listen to reason, Shepherd. All that's the matter with me is the affliction called a multiplying eye. And that's how it is. I look double to you. I mean you look double to me. A multiplying eye is a very bad thing, said Mark Clark. It always comes on when I've been in a public house a little time, said Joseph Porgrass, meekly. Yes I see two of every sort, as if I was some holy man living in the times of King Noah and entering into the ark. Yes, he added, becoming more affected by the picture of himself as a person thrown away and shedding tears. I feel too good for England. I ought to have lived in Genesis by rights, like the other men of sacrifice, and then I shouldn't have been called a drunkard in such a way. I wish you'd show yourself a man of spirit and not sit whining there.' "'Show myself a man of spirit? Well, let me take the name of drunkard humbly. Let me be a man of contrite knees. Let it be. I know that I always do say, please God, afore I do anything, from my getting up to my going down of the same and i be willing to take as much disgrace as there is in that holy act ha yes but not a man of spirit have i ever allowed the toe of pride to be lifted against my inner parts without groaning manfully that i question the right to do so i inquire that query boldly we can't say that you have Ero old Paulgrass, admitted jan never have i allowed such treatment to pass under questioned. yet the shepherd says in the face of that rich testimony that i be not a man of spirit "'Well, let it pass by, and death is a kind friend!' Gabriel, seeing that neither of the three was in a fit state to take charge of the wagon for the remainder of the journey, made no reply, but closing the door again upon them went across to where the vehicle stood, now getting indistinct in the fog and gloom of this mildewy time. He pulled the horse's head from the large patch of turf it had eaten bare, readjusted the bows over the coffin and drove along through the unwholesome night. It had gradually become rumoured in the village that the body to be brought and buried that day was all that was left of the unfortunate Fanny Robin, who had followed the Eleventh from Carcerbridge through Melchester and onwards. But thanks to Boldwood's reticence and Oak's generosity, the lover she had followed had never been individualised as Troy. Gabriel hoped that the whole truth of the matter might not be published till at any rate the girl had been in her grave for a few days, when the interposing barriers of earth and time, and a sense that the events had been somewhat shut into oblivion, would deaden the sting that revelation and invidious remark would have for Bathsheba just now. By the time that Gobel reached the old manor-house, her residence, which lay in his way to the church, it was quite dark. A man came from the gate, "'and said through the fog, which hung between them like blown flour, "'Is that poor grass with the corpse?' "'Gabriel recognised the voice as that of the parson. "'The corpse is here, sir,' said Gabriel. "'I have just been to inquire of Mrs. Troy "'if she could tell me the reason of the delay. "'I am afraid it is too late now for the funeral "'to be performed with proper decency. Um, "'Have you the registrar's certificate?' "'No,' said Gabriel.' "'I expect Poorgrass has that, and he's at the buck's head. I forgot to ask him for it.' "'Then that settles the matter. We'll put off the funeral till tomorrow morning. "'The body may be brought to the church, or it may be left here at the farm and fetched by the bearers in the morning. They waited more than an hour and have now gone home.' Gabriel had his reasons for thinking the latter a most objectionable plan notwithstanding that Fanny had been an inmate of the farmhouse for several years, in the lifetime of Bathsheba's uncle. Visions of several unhappy contingencies which might arise from this delay flitted before him. But his will was not law, and he went indoors to inquire of his mistress what were her wishes on the subject. He found her in an unusual mood. Her eyes, as she looked up to him, were suspicious and perplexed, as with some antecedent thought." Troy, had not yet returned. At first Bathsheba assented with a mien of indifference to his proposition that they should go on to the church at once with their burden. But immediately afterwards, following Gabriel to the gate, she swerved to the extreme of solicitousness on Fanny's account, and desired that the girl might be brought into the house. Ogar argued upon the convenience of leaving her in the wagon just as she lay now, with her flowers and green leaves about her, merely wheeling the vehicle into the coach-house till the morning, but to no purpose. "'It is unkind and unchristian,' she said, "'to leave the poor thing in a coach-house all night.' "'Very well, then,' said the parson, "'and I will arrange that the funeral shall take place early tomorrow. Uh, perhaps Mrs. Troy is right in feeling that we cannot treat a dead fellow-creature too thoughtfully. We must remember that though she may have erred grievously in leaving her home, she is still our sister.' and it is to be believed that God's uncovenanted mercies are extended towards her, and that she is a member of the flock of Christ.' The parson's words spread into the heavy air with a sad yet unperturbed cadence, and Gabriel shed an honest tear. Bathsheba seemed unmoved. Mr. Thirdly then left them, and Gabriel lighted a lantern. Fetching three other men to assist him, They bore the unconscious truant indoors, placing the coffin on two benches in the middle of a little sitting-room next to the hall, as Bathsheba directed. Everyone except Gabriel Oak then left the room. He still indecisively lingered beside the body. He was deeply troubled at the wretchedly ironical aspect that circumstances were putting on with regard to Troy's wife, and at his own powerlessness to counteract them in spite of his careful manoeuvring all this day, the very worst event that could in any way have happened in connection with the burial had happened now. Oak imagined a terrible discovery resulting from this afternoon's work that might cast over Bathsheba's life a shade which the interposition of many lapsing years might but indifferently lighten, and which nothing at all might altogether remove. Suddenly, as in a last attempt to save Bathsheba from, at any rate, immediate anguish, he looked again as he had looked before at the chalk writing upon the coffin-lid. The scrawl was this simple one, Fanny Robin and Child. Gabriel took his handkerchief and carefully rubbed out the two latter words, leaving visible the inscription, Fanny Robin, only. He then left the room, And went out quietly by the front door. End of chapter forty two. Recording by Simon Evers.